You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual Is COVID-19 sexually transmissible? That was the first question we tackled after the novel coronavirus began to upend our lives. And we asked it. We didn't wait for you guys to ask us. We got experts on the phone and put the question to them right away because we knew people would want to know the answer. I wanted to know the answer. And the answer was basically, well, duh, of course. While COVID-19 isn't classified as a sexually transmitted infection, you can catch it if someone breathes or coughs or sneezes near you. The virus can also survive on surfaces. So if you get close enough to someone who has it and may not be showing symptoms, as most people who have it are asymptomatic, if you get close enough for PIV or PIB or PIM intercourse, penis and vagina, penis and butt, penis and mouth, or MOV, mouth and vagina, or AOF, ass on face, hell, if you get close enough to someone just to kiss them, you're going to be within six feet of them. Whether the virus was present in semen or vaginal secretions wasn't yet known. We were told that it hadn't been found in those bodily fluids, but it wasn't clear anyone had looked for it in those bodily fluids. But there was no question, really, that sex could transmit the coronavirus. Which is why I'm a little worried about people who read the headline in the Salt Lake City Tribune last Friday without bothering to read the story. That headline... You cannot transmit coronavirus through sex, a new University of Utah study finds. Courtney Tanner reports on two studies. One tested the semen and testes of 34 men in Wuhan, China. All the men had tested positive for the virus, but none of the samples of the semen, of the balls, showed signs of coronavirus. All 34 of the subjects had mild cases and the sample size was small, but the results were significant. No virus detected in their spunk or their junk. Another study looked at 10 women with severe cases of COVID-19 infection, a smaller but sicker sample size, and no sign of the virus was found in their vaginal secretions either. If I may digress for a moment, spunk, spooge, cum, jizz, loads, baby batter, so many evocative and instantly understandable slang terms for male ejaculate, but all we seem to have for vaginal secretions is vaginal secretions. Isn't that right? Anyway, it's kind of a paradox. Unlike Zika and Ebola, which are present in semen and vaginal secretions and can be transmitted sexually, the novel coronavirus, according to these studies, isn't present in semen and vaginal secretions and technically can't be transmitted sexually, but you're definitely going to get infected if you get close enough to someone who has it to have sex with them. Tanner makes that clear in her story, 10 paragraphs into her story. The virus can be spread through other intimate contact, which is why we have to stay six feet away from others when possible. It almost certainly would be transmitted if you're kissing someone. It's advised then that partners wanting to have sex do so only if they're already staying in the same household. Yes, that is what's advised. That's what we've been advising people from the start all along. Fuck the people you live with. Unless you live with your parents, in which case, you know, don't. But basically, these two studies haven't changed anything. But I worry, and worrying is what I do, it's what I'm best at, I worry that won't be the takeaway for anyone who just read the headline. You cannot transmit coronavirus through sex. And we know most people only read the headlines. 
Perhaps I'm being an alarmist, but anyone who listens to this show regularly is familiar with the self-serving rationalizations horny people are prone to engage in. Dickful thinking, twatful thinking, it gets us in trouble. Which is why we need to keep reminding people, even if the virus isn't present in Pearl Jam or vaginal secretions, sex with new partners can definitely transmit coronavirus. At least until someone opens that chain of glory holes, power washed and disinfected between each use that I talked about on the show. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro-free edition of the Savage Lovecast, Dr. Daniel Westreich is back to give us an update on, you guessed it, the coronavirus. And on the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, Caitlin Bowden from the Badass Army joins us to talk about revenge porn. Where are we now in the battle against it? Plus tons of your Q's, tons of my A's, all that coming up on today's show. So my boyfriend and I have been together for about 12 years and the sex is still very satisfying and fun, if not maybe a little perfunctory. But during our quarantine, something delightful happened. We live in a little tiny cabin kind of tucked off in the woods. We're pretty fortunate to have some space available to us outside of our house. And the other day, my boyfriend said he was going to the garden, which is predictable. He's a gardener and it's spring is a great time of year for him. But when I went into the kitchen and looked out the kitchen window, which looks over the garden, I saw him just wanking one off over the asparagus off in the corner of the garden. And instantly I got so horny. I don't know that I've ever had a reaction like that. It was just delightful. I rubbed one out in about 30 seconds and now every time my boyfriend says that he's going to the garden I eagerly jump up and run to the kitchen and look out the window and hope to catch him wanking it. I haven't seen it again since but boy it's an easy way to get me off anymore. I'll tell him about it eventually but for now I'm just enjoying this little secret spy game that I've got going on. We're opening every show for the next few weeks with quarantine sex stories. If you have one you'd like to share Please give us a call. Share your quarantine sex stories. And hey, guys, step up. All of our quarantine sex stories so far have been from women and straight women. We'd love to hear some queer quarantine sex stories and some sex stories from dudes. Hi, Dan. I'm calling with a question about my fiance. We have been engaged for about a year and a half and had known each other for about three years before then. And the issue is that he seems to not be able to stay off dating apps. And I truly don't believe that he has met up with anybody from these apps or gone on any dates. And I'm actually pro open relationships and totally understanding of the fact that everyone wants to feel hot and have other people think that they're hot. The problem is that he refuses to tell me when he gets on the apps. So basically all I have ever wanted is a heads up because each time that he has gotten on the apps, random people have told me that he is on the apps. So the first time I was talking about our relationship to one of my friends and then I learned that he had asked one of her friends out on a date and then ghosted on her, which is a shitty thing to do. Uh, The second time I found out immediately after we got engaged that he was talking to random people and lying to them about being in a relationship, which is also a shitty thing to do. And the third time, uh, which happened yesterday, 
was that a stranger posted his Tinder profile on Instagram and tagged me in it to alert me to the fact that he is on dating apps. Each of these times, he has told me that if he would get back on the app, he would give me a heads up so I would just know. But honestly, the fact that he keeps lying to me about doing it and that strangers are telling me is kind of humiliating. At this point, I just don't know if I should stay in this relationship and marry this person who I don't think has actually been fucking other people. But the fact that he can't just be honest with me about something that I would be totally okay with him doing as long as I get a heads up just feels like a really big red flag. I'm curious how the heads up thing would work in practice. You know, if he's getting on dating apps and lying to people, we talked, we used to talk, used to hear this expression a lot, fakes and flakes. There are a lot of fakes and flakes on dating apps and people lied about being single. People stole other people's pictures and they just wanted the attention or affirmation if they used their own pictures, but they had no intention of actually meeting up and they would string people along. Not quite catfishing, just, you know, interaction and then ghosting like he did to that person that you know. Made a date and then just ghosted because he had no intention on following through. Fakes and flakes. Your fiance is one of those people. If he let you know in advance, hey, I'm going to fire up Tinder or Bumble or GoFish or whatever uh, and get online and talk to some people and then flake on them, you're still potentially going to hear from the people that he is doing this to. If he's presenting himself as single, if he's being dishonest, if he flakes on people and then because he's using his own name or his own photos, they're able to trace him back and figure out who his fiance is, you may still wind up feeling humiliated in the ways you have. You may wind up being tagged into Instagram posts or hearing from friends of friends that he hit on. So I don't know if the heads up is the solution that you would like it to be. You can say if you're tagged into someone's Instagram post about what an asshole your fiance is, oh, I know, I knew, it's not, yeah, of course he's online, I know he's online, lying to people and being a dick. That's the problem, he's lying to people and being a dick. And he's lying to you, and he's lying to these women, and just being a dick. So the question then becomes not like whether there is or isn't a heads up, or you get advance notice about when he's lying and being a dick. The question is, do you wanna marry a lying dick? Well, I think there's always a little fudging in relationships, and I don't think a relationship is a deposition. I don't think any romantic committed relationship could survive the individuals having the power to depose each other and force honest answers out of each other at all times. This level of lying and deceit speaks to a fault, a flaw in your partner's character that over the long term is probably going to manifest itself in other ways that will drive you crazy and then you will curse the day you married or perhaps scrambled your DNA together with someone who couldn't get a grip on why he behaved in this way. Maybe if he still wants to marry you, you can leverage that to get him into therapy where he can talk to somebody about why he is doing this to women and someone who isn't his fiance can walk him through why that's not okay and a problem and to generate a lot of shit in his life that he's not going to enjoy, including shit like being dumped at the altar. And he might change his ways or learn how to do better or find some other way to seek the affirmation. And I think you're right on. But yeah, he's seeking affirmation. He wants that erotic affirmation that he is attractive. He wants to feel like he can pull. He wants to flirt. There are ways to do that and get everything he's getting out of these interactions. Honestly, he can get on dating apps for partnered people who have permission from their 
significant others or spouses to be on these dating apps for partnered people. He can not fucking lie. He cannot toy with other people's emotions and ghosts on them. Half the show sometimes is people complaining about how painful it is to be ghosted. People make and they shouldn't make and they know better but they do. They make a kind of an emotional investment. They invest their hopes in someone that they've met online that they have a good feeling about. And then when that person ghosts, it's a rejection. And it's a rejection that's it can be extremely painful. And it can make you hesitant to engage with anyone else online going forward because some jerk was an asshole to you and that hesitancy to engage going forward with other people might deprive you of the relationship that you could have, should have, maybe wanted to be in if you weren't so burnt by so many fakes and flakes ghosting on you. Would I marry this guy under these circumstances? Probably not. Would I leave the guy? No. First thing I would do is try to leverage his desire, presumably to be married to me, into getting his ass into therapy. That's where your boyfriend needs to go with this shit, to therapy. Hey, Dan, this is one of your bisexual friends in the Southwest. My question is about frequent breakups. I'm in my late 30s and I'm in the best relationship I've ever had. It's the first time I've had the trifecta. Like him, love him, and want to fuck him. And we do almost daily. He's also 17 years older, but we just vibe on the same channel. Everything is great until we hit a roadblock and then both of our past histories and trauma fuck up our communication and we break up. I was raised in a cult and I'm trying not to suppress my emotions after 20 years of transcendental meditation. His childhood had verbal abuse and he shuts down with even a raise in voice. We've broken up now three times in seven months, but I swear some of these issues were legit. An orgy gone wrong, and then the pandemic massively shifted everything. We are now likely that couple who makes our friends cringe when we tell them we've broken up again. I also believe that my hormone cycle is a factor here, and I'm willing to start monitoring that. My other ideas are to never break up over text or email, and if but to argue in person, but to write things out if we have to, to avoid that increase in vocal volume that throws him off. Do you have any other suggestions on how to save the best relationship I've ever had? This is a little unorthodox, the suggestion, and it might have to wait until after the quarantine orders are lifted. But if your partner has a problem with raised voices, he could move in with me and Terry for a while. A little exposure therapy. We're always raising our voices. There's a lot of screaming and yelling in our house. It might make the screaming and yelling you do look trifling by comparison. Uh, frequent breakups can be exhausting for friends who have to, you know, be the support system or listen patiently and, you know, spooge empathy all over you every time you break up with the same person for the same reason. Eventually, you exhaust your friend's patience. They want you to shit or get off that face. They want you to end that relationship once and for all rather than cycling in and out of that relationship and kicking up a lot of drama. You know, we make demands on our friends when we're heartbroken, but there's only so many times we can make that particular demand on all of our friends about the same person for the same reason before our friends tell us what we really need to hear, which is end this once and for all and for good. You don't want to end this once and for all and for good because you like him, you love him, and you want to fuck him. The trifecta. So what do you do? Well, it seems to me that you both perhaps may be rationalizing your bad behavior in the moment, your fighting style, the way you speak to each other, hints of breaking up by text message. 
by pointing to your past traumas, your life being raised in a cult, the verbal abuse he suffered. And it seems to me that you guys maybe need a little cognitive behavioral therapy that can help you make a decision to treat each other or behave differently with your partners or anyone else where you make a conscious decision not to be dicks to each other in exactly the way you both know by now will trigger each other. So you don't raise your voice because you know what that does to him and he doesn't do whatever it is he does that sandpapers your cult issues or make you feel self-conscious about transcendental meditation or whatever it is he does when you fight. And if you can't do that, if you can't get a grip on whatever it is that you do or he does that sets both of you off and leads to another breakup, then you should make your next breakup your last. Hi, Dan. I'm a 50-year-old hetero father of two teenagers living in the Northeast. After a 22-year marriage, my divorce was recently finalized after a year and a half separation. At the time of separation, I began dating and enjoyed the new adventures. Six months into that, I met and fell in love with a wonderful woman, and we've been exclusive for a little over a year now. She is beautiful, fit, funny, so sexy, smart, and very kind-hearted. I didn't know someone like her existed. She's a great mom to her teenagers and has been divorced for over a decade. She's GGG to my new kinky and dom tendencies. We're both easily having the best sex of our lives. The attraction and connection is incredible. I can see us very happily spending the rest of our lives together. Here's where I'm struggling. I'm drawn to other women. And for the first time in my life, at least that I'm recognizing, I'm being hit on by some pretty damn hot women. It's a little weird. It's new to me and frankly exhilarating. I was a a late bloomer in many ways, and it's such an ego boost for this to be happening at my age. Intellectually, I know that I would unlikely have the kind of connection with them that I have with my girlfriend. I've not acted nor betrayed her trust, yet I still feel the urge to explore, and it's growing. The idea of disappointing her and hurting her feelings is very uncomfortable for me. I thought about suggesting an open relationship, but my girlfriend has conventional wishes for ours, so she won't be comfortable with that. I've never envisioned this as a problem for me, as I was able to manage things and be a loyal married man for 20 plus years in an up and down marriage that had infrequent and boring sex. Now, I'm very happy, humbly desirable, and conflicted as fuck. Help me, Dan. So you were six months into your separation when you met this woman. And you basically, you describe a kind of buyer's remorse, except that's a pretty awesome house, not to objectify this person by comparing them to the large inanimate object that is a home. She's hot. She's really into you. Uh, you've begun to explore your dom tendencies, and she is up for that, hopefully as into it and excited about it as you are. And that's a lot to walk away from for the promise of perhaps some decent sex with attractive women, sex that may not be as good, sex that you may not feel as good about with women who may not be into the dom sub thing the way your current girlfriend is. You know, there's the sure bet that is your current girlfriend. And what you're thinking about doing is disappointing her or walking away from her potentially for to, – to, to gamble, to gamble on other women. You're not the only person out there who faces this dilemma. You're in a relationship. It's a committed relationship. Your partner, you assume – it doesn't sound like you've had these conversations in any depth – requires monogamy or expects monogamy. There's a lot of people out there who believe their partners – 
require or expect monogamy and their partners believe the same about them, but they've never risked having a conversation about it. You might want to have that conversation. She might surprise you. But if she requires monogamy, okay, well, the world is full of people who've made monogamous commitments who might be happier in an open relationship, might prefer an open relationship. But monogamy is the price of admission they're willing to pay to be with the person that they are in that monogamous relationship with. I think it's a reasonable price of admission for you to pay at 50 to be with a woman who is super hot, who's super into you and that you're kink compatible with. Those are all pretty major. And so I would encourage you to not feel conflicted about your attraction to other women. Of course, you're going to be attracted to other women. All people in monogamous relationships are at times attracted to other people, sometimes intensely so. Monogamous commitment doesn't mean you don't want to fuck other people. It means you refrain from fucking other people. You are capable of keeping and honoring that monogamous commitment, I think particularly for this person. You're allowed to feel your feelings and it might be the way into a conversation that you met her and committed to her quickly and that you didn't have, you know, a come springa after your divorce. And if she's emotionally secure and secure in the relationship, she might be able to help you grieve that, at least acknowledge the sacrifice you made. And I think that's important. I think when people ask for a monogamous commitment from someone who might be happier with a non-monogamous commitment, that they should acknowledge that that person is paying the price of admission, a price of admission to be with them. One final thought. You say that you have dom tendencies, that she's GGG and she enjoys them. I don't know how elaborate your dom tendencies are. Sometimes that just means calling the shots in the bedroom and being a little rough. But sometimes that means something more elaborate and BDSM-y. A lot of couples who get involved in the BDSM scene make allowances for some play, mutually agreed to, perhaps limited play with others. Sometimes it turns the sub on to see their dom play with others. That's an avenue that you guys can continue to explore that might open up the relationship a bit in a way that makes you feel more content in the relationship down the road. But it's certainly something you can have a conversation with her about now, of course, depending again on the style of DS play that you two are engaged in. Hi, Dan, and the Tech Savvy at Rescue. I have a question about STDs, especially three types of STDs, chlamydia, syphilis, and gonorrhea, which are STDs that can be cured with medicine. I was wondering, since we're doing all this isolation for the coronavirus, if, the, if it were possible that everybody before start hooking up again, if they could get tested to see if we could eradicate this disease, because if nobody has it, then the virus doesn't exist. I was just thinking since we're all isolated and not hooking up at the moment, I mean, at least most people slowly we could, you know, eliminate these other diseases at the same time. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Dr. Daniel Westreich, superstar epidemiologist, associate professor of epidemiology, in fact, at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Dr. Westreich, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Dan. So this hadn't occurred to me. I'm surprised. The thing that had occurred to me was that perhaps we may be entering the golden age of glory holes soon, where glory holes might make a comeback because you don't have to breathe on anybody. But let's set that aside. Is this an opportunity? You know, if people are staying home for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, months perhaps, and honoring social distancing or physical distancing, not hooking up with randos, just having sex with the people that they live with, if those people are their sex partners, can we possibly seize this opportunity to eradicate chlamydia, syphilis, and gonorrhea? 
So it's a really interesting question, um, and it's one that uh, I and epidemiologists I know have been thinking about at least a little bit. So I, I think it's very unlikely that we're going to eradicate any sexually transmitted infections because literally getting all the numbers down to zero doesn't seem realistic, especially because not everyone is perfectly physically distancing right now. That's right. You know, we might get we might get close to eradicating syphilis, but Republican governors, they're going to make sure that that doesn't happen. Watch. Don't please don't blow a Republican governor. That's going to screw everything up. No, rob us of this opportunity. <laughs> but I do I do think that there's an interesting opportunity here around um, around lowering the prevalence of these STIs with targeted treatment and testing. I mean, there are a couple of there are a couple of things. One is that it's the connectivity of sexual networks uh, that is really integral to the spread of STIs. We know this from decades of research, um, especially around HIV, that the more connected a network is, the faster STIs spread through it. And I, I think that's pretty intuitive. And so suddenly we're in a moment where all the networks have been broken apart into little pods. And so it seems like a really good moment to test and treat. And in fact, some um, the CDC and the Department of Health and Human Services have have issued some guidance around looking for innovative ways to test and treat people. I believe California has started offering home testing uh, mm -hmm. for STIs, uh, although I don't know how widely available that is or how widely it's being taken up. And so I do think there's a real opportunity here to drop the prevalence of these STIs. The problem, of course, is that State health departments are busy right now yeah. <laughs> dealing with this other pandemic we have going on. And so the resources are really difficult to find. I, I think the caller is really onto something and that maybe the, the best way to take this advice is that I would really encourage everybody to go get tested once things start to open up and before people get back out there and start hooking up again, please go get tested and treated for any of the STIs that, that you may have and not know um, before you sort of reconnect all of these sexual and social networks. It seems to me that, you know, that, that, that lag between exposure and the onset of symptoms is when people are most likely to pass a sexually transmitted infection along. And if, you know, you're home for the more than 10 days roughly it takes for chlamydia, syphilis, gonorrhea symptoms to manifest themselves and you're not having sex with anybody in that window where, you know, people who aren't monsters who have sex with people even though they know they have gonorrhea and they haven't done anything about it. But that if you don't have sex with anybody in that window where you didn't know and then your symptoms manifest, it seems to me that a lot of people are going to be so self-motivated as to contact their primary care physicians if they have one. And perhaps, you know, through a little telemedicine, get the prescriptions that they might need to, to treat themselves. Yeah, but it's important to remember that a lot of STIs are asymptomatic. Something like, you know, up to 75% of people with chlamydia may be asymptomatic, at least for long periods of time. It's less true, I think, of gonorrhea, although I don't want to generalize too far. Um, I'm a little bit out over my skis in terms of my specific knowledge. But I do know that, that, for example, there's lots of asymptomatic chlamydia out there. Mm. And so that's not necessarily someone's going to know by the end of, of the isolation period. And so, too, you know, this might be a really good opportunity for people to, like, fill a prescription for PrEP so that it's ready when they, if, if they're someone who wants to use PrEP and wants to protect themselves that way so that it's ready when they get back out there on the sexual marketplace. But the best advice would be for everyone who has isolated 
to go and get a full STI screening when this is over. And then if you do have an STI at that moment, get treated before you jump back in to the pool. Yeah, I think so. I think that there's a real good opportunity here to um, to sort of drop the population prevalence all at once if, if a lot of people do that. While we have you on the phone, I wanted to check in with you about this little pandemic we're having. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've heard of it. You were very generous with your time <laughs> um, at the Basically, at the beginning, we, we talked to you very early on. I think there were fewer than yeah. two or 3,000 deaths at that point. We're now up to more than, I think, 43,000 deaths the day we spoke. Uh, probably be up over 50 by the time we, we broadcast this. Are we flattening the curve? Is what we're doing working? And how concerned are you about the pushback, about the rallies, uh, to reopen America, that have, you know this has become a partisan issue? How worried are you about a second way of kicking off just when it looks like we might be having an impact by all the staying home we've been doing? Yeah, it it, it does seem like, you know, all of the, the early evidence makes it look like we are flattening the curve through our physical distancing. Although, you know, there's always this lag, which makes it harder to see this this stuff between when the physical distancing happens and when you expect to see curves start to flatten out and drop. And I know that's frustrating to a lot of people. Um, and I know that people have real concerns about prolonged isolation, but I am I am very nervous about the pushback. It's sort of a psychological trap. You know, people are saying, literally saying, we were told that 100,000 or 200,000 people might die by now, but only 40 or 50 have. So all of this was for nothing. We didn't need to do this. Rather than yeah. what we've done is yeah. the reason 150,000 people aren't dead. Yeah, the the two comparisons that crop up online about this is that, um, look, this parachute has slowed my rate of descent. I guess I can take it off. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and you know that's that's a fine analogy as far as it goes, but it's not perfect. And and maybe the analogy I like better is is one of of antibiotics. You know, you're prescribed a ten day course of antibiotics, and you're told to finish that whole course. And it's really hard to keep taking those antibiotics after day five when you feel entirely better. But it's really, really important that people finish their courses of antibiotics. And this seems like a, a decent analogy to where we are now. Yes, it's, it seems to be working so far, but that's not a, not a reason to let up. The, the, the reason it's important people finish their course of antibiotics is you may feel better, but the bacteria is still present in your body and it can come roaring back if you don't keep it up if you don't finish the course of antibiotics yeah this virus could just come roaring back if we if we let up and you know there's there's still a lot we don't know right we, we don't know exactly how infectious this disease is in, in, since we last spoke there's been a new estimate of the basic reproductive number of this disease that's up around 5.7 which is much higher than the 2.5 2.6 that we were thinking it was and that might be right. That might be wrong. Data is still coming in. Science takes a while. We still don't know what the infection fatality rate is. There's so much we don't know here. Um, but what we do know is that physical distancing seems to be working to flatten the curve. And uh, this is given how much we don't know. This is not the time to let up on the thing that we are quite sure is working. So you're not attending any of these reopen America rallies yourself. <laughs> I'm not leaving my house except to go grocery shopping once a week. 
Nor am I. Um, one last question. There, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, whether someone, you know, develops antibodies. If you had it and your symptoms weren't so bad, there may be some people who hadn't even realized they had it and who may now be, you know, the theory is hopefully immune. And if we tested more people and found out who had had it or and was immune from it, those people would, you know, be, be safe for them to leave the house, maybe go into a bar. But there's also a question of whether somebody can get this again about reinfection. Is there any more data about reinfection? This, there, this is one of the, the big areas in which things are, are not very well known. There have been a couple initial reports about people developing antibodies or not um, after infection, but I, I think it's much too early to know this yet. And we certainly don't know anything about the longer term uh, immunity that, that might result from an infection. And that's just a thing that's going to take more time, unfortunately. Um, this is a really hard situation because it's it's a real burden to ask people to physically distance themselves, themselves, but it is incredibly important that we do so. Anything else you'd like to share with our listeners and your fans among my listeners who are legion <laughs> first appearance? Anything else people should know before we let you go that you want them to bear in mind besides please maintain physical distancing? It's working, which is why there isn't. 200,000 people dead right now? Yeah, well, I, I guess I guess the only other thing to say is um, in my role as, uh, I believe you, you, you named me Dr. Bummer, is <laughs> to remind people that um, it's, it's going to be hard for a while. And so um, people need to really prepare themselves for things to be hard and not sort of, quote, back to normal, unquote, for a while. Um, it's probably not going to be a normal summer. It's going to be quite a long time before we get to go to big summer music festivals again. It's a lot of things are not going to get back to normal for, for quite a long time. And I think psychologically preparing ourselves for that unfortunate reality is really important. That's why they call you Dr. Bummer. Daniel Westrack, <laughs> Associate Professor of Epidemiology at University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. Thank you so much for making time for us again. So appreciate it. You're terrific. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. Hi, Dan. I'm a 41 cis hetero dude that just had a 20 year with nine married relationship end five months ago. She's the love of my life, at least to this point, and I can't stop thinking about her. Every communication we have tears open my wounds. I know common advice for me is to get over someone, get under someone else. This has definitely occurred. Pre-pandemic lockdown, I met an awesome girl through an app and we clicked hard as friends. Once we met in person, it was clear our sexual chemistry was super strong and we became quarantines. After about a week was when this happened, um, so it was really quick, but it's been great. But the X still haunts me basically permanently. My question is, how can I possibly move on from this relationship that ended initially amicably, by the way, when it's coloring my entire life? I want to be able to do stuff without being sad all the time. You put yourself in a kind of high-pressure situation. You just got out of... This marriage, your heart is broken, you're hung up on your ex, you met someone, you really liked them, and then because of the pandemic, you wound up deciding to be quarantines. And that isn't probably allowing you much space to grieve this, to grieve the end of your marriage, to be hung up on your ex. You are not in a situation where you can express what is your feeling or how you're feeling in the moment to the person you're spending nearly every moment with, and that's the woman you're seeing now. And you probably shouldn't be expressing that to her. 
So my question for you would be, do you have someone that you can express this to? Someone other than your ex. I hope you and your ex aren't getting on the phone to rip these wounds open. Do you have a therapist? Do you have a best friend? Is there someone you can go on walks with and stay six to 10 feet apart from each other and you can pour your heart out to? You're going to have to feel these feelings. You're going to have to let them out. And you put yourself in a situation where it would be painful for the person that you're with if you let them out in front of her, if you express them to her. But if you're bottling them up, if you're having to bottle them up, if there's no release, if there's no safety valve, you're going to explode most likely at or in front of this woman who you like, who maybe you love, who's done nothing wrong, who's bringing a lot of joy and companionship to your life and sex to your life right now. So you want to be careful that when you let this out, you're doing it in a controlled way and directing it at someone who can hear you. And this woman isn't the right person. She's not the one who wants to hear how it is you feel about your ex or that you're still hung up on your ex while you're with her. She doesn't want to hear it. Find somebody you can say these things to. Find somebody you can express these things to. You won't feel instantly unhung up on your ex if you can express these feelings. But over time, the more you can get it out, the less hung up on your ex you will be and the more you'll be able to enjoy the current. Hey, Dan, big fan of your show for years, uh, calling in with a scenario that I just appreciate your take on and kind of an etiquette question to follow up. Uh, so just now I was, I went to the grocery store to get some, some stuff. I was walking back and this transsexual person, uh, a, a man turned woman kind of went by me on a scooter and like said something, but I had headphones in. I didn't really hear. She came back around took out the headphones, and she asked me, are you a goddess or a princess? And I said, oh, definitely a goddess. Uh, pretty confident on that one. And she goes, she goes, I'm a sub. And I said, oh, cool. Like, sounds good. <laughs> um, and she goes, since you're a goddess, is it okay if, can I, can I put $100 at your feet and worship you? And I'm just kind of like on the corner, on the street, like kind of been in quarantine mode for a while. Days are getting monotonous. This is by far the most interesting interaction I've had in a little while. You know, I also respect the guts it takes to approach someone on the street like that. So I said, well, I don't know. Like, will it, will that make your day? Will it like really like be a great thing for you? And she goes like, yeah. And so I said, okay, like I don't have a lot of time, but sure, why not? So she wants to go into like a really secluded part of a nearby alley. And to me, like I just started, I was like, oh, I don't know. Like I don't, I don't really want to not be in public because this person is, you know, a good like foot or so taller than me and definitely probably stronger. I don't know. I didn't really feel comfortable being like totally secluded with them. So we're like kind of in this alley, but it's clearly not as like uh, removed from the street as she would like. But she shows me like this chastity belt and I see like her an outline of a penis and she starts putting a blanket down and uh, asks me how much money I want. And I didn't realize she was like trying to pay me. I thought that she would just like the money had to be like on the ground or something. I don't know what I thought, but Anyway, the whole thing was just like a bit much for me. So I was like, no disrespect, but like, this, I think this is like a, just a little bit more than I could kind of bargain for. And also I need to get home for this conference call, which was true. And she's like, okay, okay. Like, uh, you know, can I just, uh, can I just buy your socks? And I said, sure. So I took my socks off and like gave them to her and she gave me a 20. 
And uh, so I, then I was leaving and she's like, hey, like, what's your Instagram? Like, how, what's your phone number? Can I text you? Can I call you? And I was like, I was like, I'm sorry. Like, I, this isn't really my thing. I, and I didn't give her num- my number and she was very persistent. And I said, listen, like goddesses leave when they want to leave. And I said, you have a good one and like left. And then I put the 20 in like a, a like a bench where uh, some homeless people tend to be. You know, I really think this person didn't mean me any harm, but I, I wasn't super comfortable. And like, I try and be trans positive, um, but I don't know if I was kind of rude. I don't know if like, basically, what's the right way to handle something like that? Like, should I just have not interacted with this person at all? As soon as I found out they were seeing me as like a street dominatrix in some form. I I have no judgment towards that. It's just that like if I'd wanted to be a dominatrix, I would have been a dominatrix. Is it wrong on their part to be like asking people on the street for this? Like, I don't know. What's the what's the Savage Love cast take on the etiquette around this kind of situation? The Savage Love take on this is not to pester people on the street for sexual encounters. That there are spaces people enter By dint of entering, they're giving you permission to approach them. If you were at a public play party in a dungeon, maybe this person could have approached you to inquire about worshipping you or buying your socks. If you were on FetLife, that's you sending out a signal to the world that you may be approached about these sorts of things, that you are inviting this kind of, if not attention, at least these kinds of inquiries Walking down the street from the grocery store in the middle of a pandemic when people are supposed to be staying six feet the fuck away from each other, you didn't invite this. It wasn't okay that this woman on the scooter approached you in this way. And I'm sorry, Anne, I'm going to get in trouble, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. It's hard not to see gendered shit at play here. Trans woman. She's a woman. Totally respect that. Trans women, some of them, when they – realize they're women, they come out as trans, they are women, women, trans women are women, women are trans, but they were socialized as males. And not all trans women are able to shed that socialization or can even perceive it in some cases. And the ways that this woman behaved, the ways that she treated you in that moment sounds a lot like an asshole creepy dude moving on a girl that he saw outside the grocery store that he thought was cute. Not misgendering this person. I'm comparing this person's actions to the actions that we typically associate with men. And you don't want to be transphobic and you want to be understanding about the violence trans women face and about the discrimination trans women face. But you're giving this particular trans woman the benefit of doubts and hand-wringing that she doesn't deserve. She acted in a very sexually predatory manner. That made you feel unsafe and then you had a gendered response. You were doing what women are socialized to do in an interaction like that. You were attempting to de-escalate. You were deferring. You were not wanting to say no while still sort of around the edges trying to game out what's going on so that you could protect yourself. For instance, when you refused to go further into that alley, then you felt comfortable going to that alley. But you still went to the edges of that alley with this person and that made you feel uncomfortable. So the etiquette here is all really fucked up. What she did, what she asked of you was not fucking okay. If it was a dude asking those things of you in that moment, I think you would have an easier time recognizing how not okay what this woman did to you at that moment was. 
And I think you'd have an easier time recognizing that your own conditioned response to this kind of energy, to this kind of request was you being set up by the culture because of your gender, you being made more vulnerable to this kind of predation by the culture because you were socialized to defer and de-escalate, not say no in a situation like this with a man. I'm not saying this person was a man, but you defaulted to that kind of gendered shit. So yeah, just officially, you don't ask people on the street if they're goddesses or princesses. You don't ask to worship their feet. You don't ask to buy their socks. You don't show them your chastity belt with your penis visible inside it. You just don't do these things with people on the street. It takes guts to approach someone. Yeah, it does. It does take guts to approach someone. Somebody's got to make the first move, but it is not okay to approach someone at a time in a space where they aren't inviting the approach. That's not guts at work. That's assholery at work. If you were at that dungeon, you were at that play party, you were on FetLife, you were in a, you know, a, a bar where it's understood that people are there to socialize and mix and somebody approached you, that takes guts. It takes guts because it sucks to be rejected. And to be the person who initiates contact in a moment like that is to be the person taking the greater risk of rejection and you know being hurt, being shot down. That takes guts. What this person was up to, what this woman did, that wasn't guts. That was assholery. That was predation. That was pressure. And that was just not fucking okay. That was fucking creepy Awful shit. And it doesn't sound like you were traumatized by it. But I bet she's pulled these exact same moves on other women who were traumatized by it, who no longer feel safe going wherever it was they were when this woman rolled up to them on her scooter. So, not okay. What she did was not okay. And I hope if you're ever put in a situation like this in the future, you'll say no quicker. You'll get to that no that you ultimately gave her faster. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to talk about an issue that we've talked about a lot on the show, but it's important to keep talking about it, especially now with more people hooking up online, more people sexting, more people video chatting. I support all of those things. We want to reach out and connect however we can right now. And I don't want to be a buzzkill, but there's something we all need to bear in mind, a risk that it presents, and perhaps some people who are new to video chatting where sexting aren't taking this risk into account, and that is revenge porn. Joining me to talk about that issue, Caitlin Bowden, founder CEO of Badass Army. Hey, Caitlin, how are you? Good. How are you? Good. I hope you are well and safe. Yep, staying inside. Um, wearing masks when I leave. Always use protection. Uh, <laughs> tell me about the the Badass Army and, and what your organization does. Um, we are a coalition of victims of revenge porn and image-based abuse, um, working together to make a change, make sure that no one, that this doesn't happen to anyone else. Um, we work to dismantle the websites that these um, pictures appear on that focus solely on non-consensual pornography. We work to get better laws in place to prosecute the guys that do this. Um, we I think also that's really provide... Sexist. I think it's really sexist of you to say the guys who do this. Oh, I'm, no, I'm, I totally, I'm totally I, kidding. It's only men who only a fucking asshole dude would put up a re revenge pornography website. I'm just joking, accusing you of misandry. It's infuriating. But some guys have gone to jail for oh, running revenge porn sites. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, there are uh, currently about a dozen sites on the ClearNet that are dedicated only to non-consensual pornography. Um, they divide us up into sluts by states, uh-huh. and you can search your, like, your hometown and find there's one for every city. There's a board for every city. It's insane. Well, I'm glad you guys are out there fighting it. Are you worried about there being a fresh wave of revenge porn after this Uh, sexting, texting, video conferencing, basically boom that we're experiencing right now? I absolutely am. Um, We've been seeing an uptick in victims. Um, More people are spending time online. More people are using these uh, methods to communicate online. So, you know, more nudes are being taken, more nudes are being shared. And of course, you know, people are getting catfished and harmed just like normal. Um, So we are, you know, really there for victims. We're there to provide support and help. And um, hopefully it, you know, we can see it go back down soon. You know, when we first started talking about this issue on the show a million years ago, there were revenge porn laws in, I think, zero states, maybe one or two. Now I'm happy to say it's in the 40s, more than mm-hmm. 40 states? It's about mid-40s. That's really positive. People do have legal recourse. What's the advice that you give to people uh, who contact you, who've been victimized in this way, about their rights and, and what their next step should be? Um, well, one, you want to save everything. Screenshot everything. You want to um, copy every URL. Um, and you want to collect as much evidence as you possibly can. If you can get the picture... Uh, with the EXIF data intact, it's going to be way easier to figure out who might have posted this um, and how they got it. So that's the first thing we want to tell everybody. And the second thing is to just breathe. It's going to be okay. Um, there are options, whether that's you know legal uh, prosecution, civil prosecution, or um, just getting it removed. So it's going to be fine. This is not the end of your life, which a lot of people, it can feel like that. There have been suicides. People have been victimized in revenge porn because there have been suicides. Oh, absolutely. Especially, I mean, I can't even imagine. We see it a lot with um, kids that are still in high school. And I can't imagine trying to go to my high school um, after dealing with that. Having everyone in my class have seen like seen me naked, like that would have been the most mortifying moment. And we would just want to make sure that everybody gets through this in one piece, whether that's a teenager or a mom or anybody. Nobody deserves to have this happen to them. It's all about consent. um, And it's all about people taking agency over their own body and their own images. Is it usually exes who do this to people, ex-boyfriends, ex-husbands who are pushing this stuff out online against the the consent of their partners? Oddly enough, that is not as common as you would think. You know, with the term revenge porn, you know, it implies that it is an ex or, you know, somebody that you've harmed. But really, we found that there is a huge subculture on the internet of dudes that trade these pictures, just like they're Pokemon cards. Mm-hmm. I'll give you Jessica for Jennifer. Um, if somebody posts one of Mandy, I'll post one for Katie of Katie. Like it's a lot of times it's people they don't even know. But where do the images first originate online? Who's the first person who shared Mandy's pictures? Um, they get them in a variety of ways. For me personally, my own experience, um, because I am a victim of this as well, somebody stole my ex's cell phone to get to the pictures. Um, we've seen people that work in cell phone repair shops, computer repair shops, um, that will take the hard drives and grab all the images off of there and upload them. We've seen people that are phishing Snapchat accounts. There's um, 
a ton of different ways that people have obtained these pictures. And nowadays, with um, the technology that's available, like deep nudes or deep fakes, you don't even have to take a nude to be a victim of this. That makes me think about something I've said frequently. I wasn't sure I was going to bring this up with you, but I will. Which is, you know, one of long-term cultural shift solutions to the problem of revenge pornography is there not being a huge stigma, and and it, there not being a way to weaponize you having dirty images out there because basically everybody does. We're reaching a kind of mm-hmm. more quickly reaching a tipping point. I hope where people can't be judged or shamed about their images or people don't want to weaponize them or don't want to make somebody else feel bad about their images being online because they know theirs are out there somewhere that we're all kind of in this together. It's a mutual assured Mm -hmm. destruction kind of detente. Uh, And since this is really normal, it's really normal for people to sext. It's really normal for people to sext with their intimate partners. It's one of the ways that people keep the spark alive in their relationships it's how people flirt it's often you know the first thing people do is start sending each other messages via a dating app and then sometimes begin to swap photos and then they send a dirty photo it it goes there if it's normal if it's common why can't, doesn't it seem like eventually culturally will reach a point where people just shrug when someone else's pictures are online you know the worry is you know, my pictures are online. I don't want people to look at my naked body, but you're going to be judged or shamed or fired or ostracized or, you know, your family is going to be super upset. But if we reach a point where you're not being judged, you're not being shamed, you're not being ostracized, your family is like, eh, don't want to see that, but whatever, we've all done it. If we reach that point, does it become, you know, if unwelcome, if unpleasant, less harmful emotionally, less traumatic? I would like to think so, but I also realize that there would have to be a huge cultural shift for that to take place. We would have to stop policing other people's sexuality. We'd have to stop viewing sexuality as shameful. And for that to happen, there would need to be, you know, comprehensive sex ed in schools. There would need to be a good education program around sex. Um, And people would need to, I don't know, stay out of each other's business a little bit. I don't see that happening anytime soon, which is really disappointing. Because the honest truth is we all have sex. We all have bodies. There isn't anything to be ashamed of. But And we're all carrying little porn production companies around in our pockets in the form of our phones. And Exactly. Even before phones. I mean, look at Greek pottery. <laughs> People have been putting their nude bodies on things. They've been taking pictures of them forever. That is like the automatic thing. We have an entire camera line that is dedicated just to taking nudes. What do you think Polaroids are really used for? Oh, right. I was just going to say, mean, like, <laughs> it's hilarious to think that Greek pottery was the Polaroid of its era. Mm-hmm. And now we have the sext message, but it all, you can trace a line back to the, to the Greek pottery, the Venus of Willendorf. Um, where should people go uh, who are, want to support your organization, who've been there and might want to join the organization to offer support or might need the support of your organization? Where can they find you guys online? Um, they can find our website, www.badassarmy.org, or they can look us up on Twitter, the badass underscore army, same as Instagram. Um, we're on Facebook. Um, we're everywhere. And there's a lot of us. And, and what we're fighting we, back. So and, anyone that wants to join, hit me up. <laughs> and what do we do about the holdout states? We're like up there in the mid 40s. There's a few holdout states. How do we get them on board? Um, we need more victims from those states that are willing to speak out, that are willing to talk to their lawmakers. Um, and make them realize that this is something that is happening there. 
Um, because, because most of the time they just believe this is something that doesn't happen here. And it's a consent violation, sharing someone's nude images without their permission, making them public, sharing them even to somebody you thought you could trust without the permission of the person who originally shared that photograph with you is a consent violation. And it traumatizes people and you shouldn't fucking do it. Absolutely. Everything should be done with consent. That's it. Caitlin Bowden, founder, CEO of Badass Army. You can find them at badassarmy.org. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone today. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Stay safe. You too. Hey, Dan. I'm a happily married heterosexual man from the United States. My wife of eight months, partner for four and a half years, recently came to realize that she identifies as polyamorous and has feelings for one of our roommates, who is also a longtime friend of hers. She's not particularly looking to change up our lifestyle, but is interested in being able to go on occasional dates and trips with him. I'm pretty hardwired for a monogamous lifestyle and relationship, but believe having strong connections and deep friendships is a really good thing. I want to support her in keeping this meaningful connection she has, and also in being able to authentically express herself enough so that her heart doesn't hurt or shrivel up inside. I believe shutting the whole thing down completely would ultimately be damaging for our own relationship in the long run. We're not currently pursuing a world where they go on dates or express their bond sexually. I'm told it's possible to become poly, and I'm exploring how far down that road I think I could ever travel. But we're keeping everything between them platonic in this time of exploration and social isolation. Although we are allowing some physical expressions of affection like hugs and couch cuddling. That said, the overall journey has been very painful, and I'm also finding the day-to-day of all living together very stressful. Things that wouldn't have bothered me in the past, like them going on hikes, doing yoga at home, or even having a cup of coffee in the morning, add to my stress, which makes it very hard to try and broaden my horizons, so to speak. I find the small daily observance of the connection they have painful, even as I'm trying to accept it expanding. Any advice on where to go from here that preserves our love, hearts, souls, and trust? Your wife made a monogamous commitment to you. I don't think monogamy is natural. I don't think it's our default setting as a species. But we make monogamous commitments and we have to honor those commitments. And one way we honor them is not by unilaterally declaring them null and void because we suddenly realized that we are non-monogamous or we would be happier if we were non-monogamous or we are poly. There are some people who argue that polyamorous is a sexual orientation and people come to that realization and then they come out and you have to respect their sexual orientation. And some people who come to that realization and come out as polyamorous feel like they have to be affirmed and accepted by Everyone, and I think that's, I think you have a right to expect affirmation and acceptance when you come out. But the one person that I don't think you're entitled to automatic acceptance and affirmation from is the spouse that you made a monogamous commitment to. And just saying, I've realized I'm poly isn't the trump card that some people seem to think it is. I've heard from people who've been told that they're being discriminatory or polyphobic or somehow hateful if they don't allow their 
spouses, often their husbands who've suddenly realized they're poly after five or 10 years of marriage and a couple of kids, they don't allow them to act on their true and authentic sexual orientation by fucking other people. And I just don't think that's fair. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I think even a poly person in that circumstance should be able to project themselves into the experience of the other, the spouse, and conclude that they wouldn't want this done unto them if they were on the other side. And therefore, they can't just make these sorts of unilateral revisions to the relationship or demands. All that said, we're going to take your wife and this person that she has feelings for that you are living with at their word and assume they're not fucking on these hikes, they're not fucking before they have coffee, and they're not fucking before or after these cuddles on the couch. They're rushing it. They're rushing you. You're not there yet. Your wife is causing you pain. If she wants you to get there eventually, she needs to slow her fucking roll. I think if she is interested, if you are interested in the long-term success of your marriage, this guy needs to find some place the fuck else to go shelter and get out of your house. If indeed your marriage and your relationship Yours and the wife's is your top priority. If indeed it's your wife's top priority, she needs to shut this down and give you some time to adjust to this in theory before she imposes it on you in practice, before you have to watch it, before you have to look at it. It can work out in the long run. We talk about PUDs a lot on this show, people who are poly under duress. Opening up a relationship is usually one person's idea. In poly circles, in non-monogamous circles, people in open relationships, you meet so many couples where one was initially the PUD. One was poly under duress. They agreed to open the relationship to save it, but they were a little reluctant. Maybe they were upset, unhappy, and they grew into it. And this relationship model now works for them and they are poly and no longer PUDs, no longer poly under duress. It's almost always one person who raised the issue. Rarely in a committed relationship that is now open and most open relationships were monogamous at one time. Rarely does one person say, I think I might want to open the relationship. And the other person says, oh my God, me too, Yahtzee. That almost never happens. So I'm not pronouncing your marriage or your relationship with the wife dead. You can get there, but you're not going to get there. You're not going to get there successfully if she rushes you like this and shows so little consideration for your emotional security, for your feelings. And if she can't do that, if she can't prioritize your feelings at this moment when you're the one who's being asked to move, when you're the one who's being asked to sign off on a fundamental revision of your commitment to one another and allow for something, allow her to have other romantic attachments and sexual attachments to other people, she's asking a lot of you. She's got to give. The person who asks to open the relationship doesn't get at the start. They give at the start. You give the other person time. You give the other person your attention. You shower them with affection. You demonstrate to them, word and deed, that they're still your priority. She's not doing that. She's not demonstrating that to you. And if she can't, I don't have much hope for the future of this relationship. If she can't, I don't think you're going to be one day a happily poly former pud. I think one day you're going to be a divorced man. And the better for it. 
Hey, Dan and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'm a polyamorous bisexual woman calling with a quarantine question. My partner and I of two and a half years live separately and plan to for the foreseeable future. He has two kids who I love, but my ideal living situation does not involve kids. He lives in a small place, and we both live and work about 45 minutes away from each other. I also have two animals I care for at home, and I'm sort of in charge of all the maintenance and overall housekeeping at home with my two roommates. I'm calling for a sanity check. We decided to quarantine separately because I have two roommates and he has two kids who go back and forth to his ex's place and he has to go into work sometimes at his job, which is essential. His ex is definitely not taking this seriously and is still seeing her partner who is polyamorous and sees a bunch of his partners and his wife and kids. My roommates are understandably worried about me going back and forth between my place and his because of the risks of spreading COVID and I live in California, which is under shelter at home orders. We're both trying to do the most responsible thing, but I frequently see other people, including some of my polyamorous friends, visiting other partners. I even have a friend who flew across country and back to see their partner and is now seeing other partners from other households. Needless to say, this is a big personal sacrifice for my partner and I, since we really fucking miss each other, and it's infuriating to see other people being so cavalier about this when we feel we're making this personal sacrifice for the greater good. My question is, are we being too stringent? Should we just go ahead and see each other from time to time like normal and wash our hands a bunch? Or are we doing the right thing by quarantining separately? Here I was thinking it was the runners, the joggers who were going to get us killed because they keep blowing past me without running six feet around me. I don't understand. You're out for a run. Run six extra feet around me. Why appear over my shoulder suddenly at the last moment, breathing heavily? I thought it was the runners who were going to get us all killed, but apparently it's the poly folks, at least the ones you know in California, who are going to get us all killed. Uh, Yeah, it's not okay. A lot of what you describe uh, people doing is not okay. We have to physically distance ourselves from one another and going from one polypod to another polypod and back and forth is ill-advised. And I would encourage you and your boyfriend to stick to your guns and continue to enjoy each other online and not get together, particularly if his ex-wife and their co-parenting together is not taking any precautions and is putting her own children at risk. Yeah, your roommates are right to raise the concern that they did, that you seeing him, if he's seeing his ex-wife and he's co-parenting at a time when she's being as reckless as she is being, places you at risk and you placing yourself at risk places them at risk, perhaps unacceptable risk. I know I'm taking a hard line on this. People are doing sometimes what they need to do to stay sane, if not stay safe. But you asked me for my advice and there it is. So yeah, I would advise you not to see this guy for all the reasons you cited and out of respect for your roommates and their right to informed consent around who they're living with and the risks they're assuming. Hi, Dan. Hello from Europe. I'm a mid-30s, straightish cis woman. I wanted to call about some non-COVID related uh, issue, relationship advice that I'm seeking. I've had this friend since I was a young teenager, we were really close then. We had a lot of first experiences then, getting drunk, uh, going out uh, together, even getting drunk and kissing. But all the all the girls do that, I think, at that age. And we, we live in a different city now. We have grown apart, but we had always kept in touch. She always kind of considered herself part of our family. And uh, about eight months ago, her friends and her came to visit me we, to go to a concert. And um, afterwards, uh, her friends didn't want to go out, but we did. 
there were some drugs involved. And uh, after we got home, uh, she went to sleep on the couch in the living room. I went to my room. And in the middle of the night, she came in and was really aggressively kind of trying, like, she, firstly, she snuggled up to me, and then she started touching me quite aggressively. And uh, before I knew it, she was going down on me, saying, oh, I've never done this before. Now, I was firstly shocked, high, drunk, half asleep. And it was one of those things where you're traumatized because you, you know, someone's doing something that you enjoy, but also you don't want them to be doing it. And this was the first time I've ever experienced this type of feeling. And anyway, uh, I, after a while, I, I told her to stop and, and, and told her to leave and get out. And finally, I managed to get back to sleep and, uh, and I wake up and she's in my room and touching me again. And I had to throw her out of my room and lock the door. And, uh, the next morning I, I kind of waited until she and her friends went for breakfast. And then my, my reaction was to just tell her, let's not talk about it because she was so apologetic. And I, for me, like the first reaction was just like, let's forget about it. However, it's not something you forget. Like I, I've tried to put it in a little box and try to, try to move on with my life, but obviously I've, I've had a reaction to it. And, um, I, for months I barely talked to her, but then I felt bad because I'm thinking maybe she's closeted lesbian, maybe because she's quite conservative and, and, um, she always had a negative reaction to gays and, and, uh, lesbians. And, and I would always have these fights with her about that, that it's not, you can't judge people f for that at all. And, uh, and anyway, and I've told her about my experiences with women and, and, you know, she knows that I'm quite experienced and, and, and I'd like to, to trial things. I just don't know what to do with this situation because I saw her, I would chat with her, but I was always would make sure that we're somewhere with other people around, always keeping her arm's length. She never brought it up. I never brought it up, but this is kind of eating me. I, it's one of those things where I just know that it would be better to talk about it, but I'm so terrified of the conversation because it really genuinely hurt me so much and, and shocked me. And I felt so used and abused by someone who I have known all my life and, and loved and as a, as a sister almost. So I'd really appreciate your input and your thoughts on this. Perhaps I just need someone to tell me, yes, you need to talk to this woman and sit her down. But at the moment, I'm terrified to do that. You need to talk to her. You need to talk to someone else first, though. I think you need to speak with a counselor with some expertise around trauma, around rape. You were violated and you were clearly traumatized by this experience. I want to zero in on one particular thing that you say that I think is common for a lot of people who've experienced sexual trauma, this kind of sexual trauma. Someone is doing something to you that you enjoy, but you don't want them doing it. That disconnect when your body is responding positively because you are getting wet, you're getting aroused, you, you're having this physiological response, even as emotionally you're recoiling. And that sense of betrayal, also that sense of complicity, did I really want this thing to be happening if I was responding in this way, is a mind fuck. And you need to unpack that with someone. And you need to talk with this woman, this predatory classic case, about what she did to you. And how traumatized you were by it, in part for this reason, but you trusted her. You let her into your space. You had this 
lifelong connection, this intimacy. You say you loved her past tense. You didn't say I love her. You say I loved her. She threw that all away because she's a messy fucking closet case because she's deeply conflicted because she seized the opportunity when you were vulnerable due to the drugs and alcohol and she was disinhibited due to the drugs and alcohol to sexually assault you. You say that she was aware that you'd had relationships with women and that you'd had sex with women. And so she felt, I guess, as some deeply closeted motherfuckers feel, entitled to touch you. That because you'd had sex with other women that you weren't allowed to say no to sex with any woman, her included. That's deeply fucked up. You're angry still and you're hurt and you're avoiding her out of fear, fear of – what this confrontation that you need to have these things that you need to say to her that are probably going to put her on the spot, make her defensive, force her to look inside herself, to take some responsibility for what she did and how damaging it was. It'll be very upsetting for her to hear what it is that you need to say to her. And that's probably one of the reasons why you hesitate to say it because you are a kind and good and loving and decent person and you don't want to hurt someone else, even this person who has hurt you. So you need to let go of that. You need to lean in to potentially saying things to this person that upset her because she has so upset you, so damaged you. It's not going to be magic to hear her apologize. It may help though. And it will definitely help to take everything that you're feeling and everything that you're internalizing about this moment, about what happened at this moment, that night, and shift the burden of the responsibility of living with it off your shoulders and onto hers. You're keeping her secret for her right now. Even with her, you keep that secret for her. She sees you when you guys are together with others and knows what you know and knows what she did. And maybe she feels terrible about it. Maybe she feels genuinely terrible about it. But she deserves to feel worse about it at least worse than you feel about it. So please speak to a therapist, speak to a counselor who has expertise around sexual trauma, around rape, figure out what it is that you need to say to this person, what it'll help you to say to this person, and then get her on the phone, perhaps a mediated conversation with your therapist, or put it in a letter if you feel safe, writing it down, and send it to her or read it to her. I'm so sorry this happened to you. I'm so sorry that your friend, someone you thought was a friend, someone you thought loved you, violated you in this way. And it's especially painful when you leave an experience like this feeling like your body betrayed you on some level. Please know that that is purely physiological, that you were not invested, you were not into this, you didn't want it, that your response, your body responding the way it responded was an automatic response. What matters at that moment is your will and what you consented to and what you really wanted and you did not want this in any way at all and you are not to blame. I'm really sorry this happened to you. I'm really glad you called. Please get that therapist, make that plan, shift the burden of responsibility for what happened that night onto the shoulders of the person who is responsible. Hi, Dan and everybody. I am a 20-something queer woman living in the Midwest and I wanted to um, send in a recording of it's not a quarantine sex story or even a sex question 
but it's um, my quarantine coming out story. I've been closeted to my family and it felt long overdue that it, I needed to come out. But just thinking about, you know, the social distancing and not knowing when we we're going to be able to all see each other again, I um, felt that the time was right now. So a couple days ago, I recorded a video coming out and I sent it in my family group chat and they all responded with really loving and affirming gifts and memes and it felt just very 2020 and so I just wanted to share that and say thank you for all the work you've done and the influence that you have over have had over me and so many people to live their authentic truth. Thank you so much for calling and sharing that with all of us. I'm really touched and delighted. And I want to highlight, sometimes you come out to your family and they surprise you. We wait to come out to our families in fear that they might respond negatively. And sometimes those fears are grounded in evidence, things our families have done or said in the past that led us legitimately to conclude that they wouldn't be so psyched about finding out that one of their kids or siblings was queer. And then we finally work up the courage to tell them and is often the case these days, get a much better response than we expected. And that is always delightful to hear. I like to say that people call me when they have problems. People come out to their families and it is a problem. They give me a call. Rarely do people call me when they come out to their families and it isn't a problem. That can create a false impression about how often it is a problem when you come out to your family. So I was really grateful to hear from you and really psyched to get to play your call. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read your tweets. Mary Naomi tweets, listening to Savage Lovecast, episode 703, regarding guest Aaron Gibson telling fake Dan Savage that dating lesbians equals getting eaten out. Sorry to break it to you, but there are plenty of lesbians who hate going down on women, just like there's plenty of gay guys who don't enjoy anal sex. Thank you for writing, Mary Naomi and noted. Kendra Holiday tweets, Hey at Fake Dan Savage, the story you told about your dining room table was one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard come out of your mouth. Is that posted as a mini essay anywhere I could share it? It gave such hope. Would love to see a pic of it. If you do a deep dive on my Instagram, you will see a photo of my great-grandparents' dining room table and a little more that I wrote about it. I also wrote a little bit about that dining room table in The Commitment, the book I wrote about marriage and family. And finally, Danny Danger tweets, just heard on Savage Lovecast that Hump Film Fest will be streaming this spring. I've gone the past two years and I am thrilled that I'll be able to see it another year despite the quarantine. Thanks to all the filmmakers who agreed to allow your films to stream. You are the real quarantines. If you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast and now your response calls. Hi, Dan. I'm responding to the caller whose boyfriend seems to like um, lying about uh, sleeping with other people. And I kind of think you're really off the mark on this one. If they made an agreement that they are going to be honest with each other about who they're sleeping with and he's doing it anyway uh, without telling her, that's cheating in my books. And especially in the middle of a pandemic, she really has a right to know where her boyfriend is uh, getting intimate, you know. If he's bringing STIs and coronavirus back in his home, she has every right to know that um, to protect herself and, and keep herself safe. So I really think there should be some some more explicit discussions about um, sexual health and, and health in general if they are going to go this DADT route. 
just a message for the caller on 704 who had the boyfriend that likes to have one night stands Friday days and won't share all of the details uh, when he returns, but she enjoys those details. I, too, am in the same relationship with my husband. It has been that way for three or four years where he likes to go out, have one night stands, and uh, then he tells me about it. But we had a hard time in the beginning because he usually felt some sort of guilt, like he was getting away with something he shouldn't be allowed to, no matter what our agreement was between the two of us. Um, and it took some time for him to walk, work through that guilt. So I would uh, throw that out as an option that maybe the boyfriend is feeling some sort of guilt by being allowed to get away with what everybody else is not allowed to get away with. Good luck. This is a shout out to the girl in episode 704 who's downtrodden about being single during the pandemic. I feel you. I just broke off my engagement right before the pandemic hit the U.S. and I'm experiencing a double layer of grief right now. But I'm discovering a lot about myself and enjoying prioritizing myself for the first time in years. But Dan was right. This won't last forever. But allow yourself some grace in the interim. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz, 206-302-2064. Better yet, use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. There's been a big uptick in Magnum gift subscriptions. People are sending the Magnum to the folks they know who enjoy the show, who are stuck at home to give them a little bit more lovecast in their lives. We really appreciate everybody who's a Magnum subscriber and everyone who's gifted a Magnum subscription. Go to savagelovecast.com to subscribe. Twice as much show, more guests, no ads, and you can give it as a gift. My Dirty Little Porn Film Festival Hump is going to be streaming online from May 9th through June 12th, hosted by me. We got permission from the filmmakers to show their films online, and we'll have the 15th annual Hump Film Festival. I'll introduce the show live, streaming myself online, and then you get to watch all of these great dirty movies in the comfort and safety of your own home. Go to humpfilmfest.com to watch the trailer, check out the lineup, and choose the date and time that works for you. And there's an additional show for Hump fans in Europe. Go to humpfilmfest.com for all the information Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Caitlin Bowden of Badass Army on Twitter at Badass Bowden. And follow Dr. Daniel Westreich on Twitter at Epid by Design. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading and please stay safe.